0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg. www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. THE INVISIBLE MAN. In the cool blue twilight of two steep streets in Camden Town, the shop at the corner, a confectioner's, glowed like the butt of a cigar. One should rather say, perhaps, like the butt of a firework, for the light was of many colors and some complexity, broken up by many mirrors, and dancing on many gilt and gaily coloured cakes and sweetmeats against this one fiery glass were glued the noses of many gutter snipes for the chocolates were all wrapped in those red and gold and green metallic colours which are almost better than chocolate itself and the huge white wedding cake in the window was somehow at once remote and satisfying just as if the whole North Pole were good to eat. Such rainbow provocations could naturally collect the youth of the neighborhood up to the ages of ten or twelve. But this corner was also attractive to youth at a later stage, and a young man, not less than twenty-four, was staring into the same shop window. To him also the shop was of fiery charm, but this attraction was not wholly to be explained by Chocolates, which, however, he was far from despising. He was a tall, burly, red-haired young man, with a resolute face, but a listless manner. He carried under his arm a flat, grey portfolio of black-and-white sketches, which he had sold with more or less success to publishers ever since his uncle, who was an admiral, had disinherited him for socialism because of a lecture which he had delivered against that economic theory. His name was John Turnbull Angus. Entering at last, he walked through the confectioner's shop to the back room, which was a sort of pastry-cook restaurant, merely raising his hat to the young lady who was serving there. She was a dark, elegant, alert girl in black, with a high color and very quick, dark eyes, and after the ordinary interval she followed him into the inner room to take his order. His order was evidently a usual one. "'I want, please,' he said with precision, "'one halfpenny bun and a small cup of black coffee.' An instant before the girl could turn away, he added, "'Also, I want you to marry me.' The young lady of the shop stiffened suddenly and said, "'Those are jokes I don't allow.' The red-haired young man lifted grey eyes of an unexpected gravity. "'Really and truly,' he said, "'it's as serious, as serious as the halfpenny bun. "'It is expensive,' like the bun. One pays for it. It is indigestible, like the bun. It hurts. The dark young lady had never taken her dark eyes off him, but seemed to be studying him with almost tragic exactitude. At the end of her scrutiny she had something like the shadow of a smile, and she sat down in a chair. "'Don't you think—' Observed Angus, absently, that it's rather cruel to eat these halfpenny buns. They might grow up into penny buns. I shall give up these brutal sports when we are married. The dark young lady rose from her chair and walked to the window, evidently in a state of strong but not unsympathetic cogitation. When at last she swung round again, with an air of resolution, She was bewildered to observe that the young man was carefully laying out on the table various objects from the shop window. They included a pyramid of highly colored sweets, several plates of sandwiches, and the two decanters containing that mysterious port and sherry, which are peculiar to pastry cooks. In the middle of this neat arrangement, he had carefully let down the enormous load of white sugared cake which had been the huge ornament of the window. "'What on earth are you doing?' she asked. "'Duty, my dear Laura,' he began. "'Oh, for the Lord's sake, stop a minute,' she cried, "'and don't talk to me in that way. "'I mean, what is all that?' "'A ceremonial meal, Miss Hope.' "'And what is that?' she asked impatiently pointing to the mountain of sugar. "'The wedding cake, Mrs. Angus,' he said. The girl marched to that article, removed it with some clatter, and put it back in the shop window. She then returned, and, putting her elegant elbows on the table, regarded the young man not unfavourably, but with considerable exasperation.' "'You don't give me any time to think,' she said. "'I'm not such a fool,' he answered. "'That's my Christian humility.' "'She was still looking at him, "'but she had grown considerably graver behind the smile. "'Mr. Angus,' she said steadily, "'before there is a minute more of this nonsense, "'I must tell you something about myself as shortly as I can.' "'Delighted,' replied Angus gravely. "'You might tell me something about myself, too, while you are about it.' "'Oh, do hold your tongue and listen,' she said. "'It's nothing that I'm ashamed of, and it isn't even anything that I'm specially sorry about. "'But what would you say if there were something that is no business of mine, and yet is my nightmare?' ''In that case,'' said the man seriously, ''I should suggest that you bring back the cake.'' ''Well, you must listen to the story first,'' said Laura persistently. ''To begin with, I must tell you that my father owned the inn called the Red Fish at Ludbury, and I used to serve people in the bar. I have often wondered,'' he said, ''why there was a kind of Christian air "'about this one confectioner's shop. "'Ludberry is a sleepy, grassy little hole "'in the eastern counties, "'and the only kind of people who ever came to the Redfish "'were occasional commercial travellers, "'and for the rest, the most awful people you can see, "'only you've never seen them. "'I mean little, loungy men, "'who had just enough to live on and had nothing to do but lean about in bar-rooms and bet on horses, in bad clothes that were just too good for them. Even these wretched young rotters were not very common at our house, but there were two of them that were a lot too common, common in every sort of way. They both lived on money of their own, and were wearisomely idle and overdressed. "'but yet I was a bit sorry for them, "'because I half believe they slunk into our little empty bar "'because each of them had a slight deformity, "'the sort of thing that some yokels laugh at. "'It wasn't exactly a deformity, either. "'It was more an oddity. "'One of them was a surprisingly small man, "'something like a dwarf, or at least like a jockey. "'He was not at all jockeyish to look at, though. He had a round black head and a well-trimmed black beard, bright eyes like a bird's. He jingled money in his pockets, he jangled a great gold watch-chain, and he never turned up except dressed just too much like a gentleman to be one. He was no fool, though, though a futile idler. He was curiously clever at all kinds of things, that couldn't be the slightest use, a sort of impromptu conjuring, making fifteen matches set fire to each other like a regular firework, or cutting a banana or some such thing into a dancing doll. His name was Isidore Smythe, and I can see him still, with his little dark face, just coming up to the counter, making a jumping kangaroo out of five cigars. THE OTHER FELLOW WAS MORE SILENT AND MORE ORDINARY, BUT SOMEHOW HE ALARMED ME MUCH MORE THAN POOR LITTLE Smythe. HE WAS VERY TALL AND SLIGHT AND LIGHT-HAIRED. HIS NOSE HAD A HIGH BRIDGE, AND HE MIGHT ALMOST HAVE BEEN HANDSOME, IN A SPECTRAL SORT OF WAY. BUT HE HAD ONE OF THE MOST APPALLING SQUINTS I HAVE EVER SEEN OR HEARD OF. WHEN HE LOOKED STRAIGHT AT YOU, "'you didn't know where you were yourself, "'let alone what he was looking at. "'I fancy this sort of disfigurement "'embittered the poor chap a little, "'for while Smythe was ready to show off "'his monkey tricks anywhere, "'James Welkin, that was the squinting man's name, "'never did anything except soak in our bar parlor "'and go for great walks by himself "'in the flat gray country all round.' All the same, I think Smythe, too, was a little sensitive about being so small, though he carried it off more smartly. And so it was that I was really puzzled, as well as startled, and very sorry when they both offered to marry me in the same week. Well, I did what I've since thought was perhaps a silly thing, but, after all, these freaks were my friends in a way, And I had a horror of their thinking I refused them for the real reason, which was that they were so impossibly ugly. So I made up some gas of another sort, about never meaning to marry anyone who hadn't carved his way in the world. I said it was a point of principle with me, not to live on money that was just inherited like theirs. Two days after I had talked in this well-meaning sort of way, the whole trouble began. THE FIRST THING I HEARD WAS THAT BOTH OF THEM HAD GONE OFF TO SEEK THEIR FORTUNES, AS IF THEY WERE IN SOME SILLY FAIRY-TALE. WELL, I'VE NEVER SEEN EITHER OF THEM FROM THAT DAY TO THIS, BUT I'VE HAD TWO LETTERS FROM THE LITTLE MAN CALLED Smythe, AND REALLY THEY WERE RATHER EXCITING. EVER HEARD OF THE OTHER MAN? ASKED ANGUS. NO, HE NEVER WROTE, SAID THE GIRL. "'after an instant's hesitation. "'Smythe's first letter was simply to say "'that he had started out walking with Welkin to London, "'but Welkin was such a good walker "'that the little man dropped out of it "'and took a rest by the roadside. "'He happened to be picked up by some travelling show, "'and, partly because he was nearly a dwarf, "'and partly because he was really a clever little wretch, "'he got on quite well in the show business.' and was soon sent up to the aquarium to do some tricks that I forget. That was his first letter. His second was much more of a startler, and I only got it last week. The man called Angus emptied his coffee cup and regarded her with mild and patient eyes. His own mouth took a slight twist of laughter as she resumed. "'I suppose you've seen on the hoardings all about this Smythe's silent service. "'Or you must be the only person who hasn't. "'Oh, I don't know much about it. "'It's some clockwork invention for doing all the housework by machinery. "'You know the sort of thing. "'Press a button, a butler who never drinks. "'Turn a handle, ten housemaids who never flirt. "'You must have seen the advertisements.' Well, whatever these machines are, they are making pots of money, and they are making it all for that little imp whom I knew down in Ludbury. I can't help feeling pleased the poor little chap has fallen on his feet, but the plain fact is I'm in terror of his turning up any minute and telling me he's carved his way in the world, as he certainly has. And the other man, repeated Angus, with a sort of obstinate quietude. "'Laura Hope got to her feet suddenly. "'My friend,' she said, "'I think you are a witch. "'Yes, you are quite right. "'I have not seen a line of the other man's writing, "'but I have no more notion than the dead "'of what or where he is. "'But it is of him that I am frightened. "'It is he who is all about my path. "'It is he who has half-driven me mad.' Indeed, I think he has driven me mad, for I have felt him where he could not have been, and I have heard his voice when he could not have spoken. Well, my dear, said the young man cheerfully, if he were Satan himself, he is done for, now you have told somebody. One goes mad all alone, old girl. But when was it you fancied you felt and heard our squinting friend? I heard James Welkin laugh as plainly as I hear you speak," said the girl steadily. There was nobody there, for I stood just outside the shop at the corner, and could see down both streets at once. I had forgotten how he laughed, though his laugh was as odd as his squint. I had not thought of him for nearly a year, but it's a solemn truth that a few seconds later. The first letter came from his rival. "'Did you ever make the spectre speak or squeak or anything?' asked Angus, with some interest. Laura suddenly shuddered, and then said, with an unshaken voice, "'Yes. Just when I had finished reading the second letter from Isidore Smythe announcing his success, just then I heard Welkin say, He shan't have you, though.' "'It was quite plain, as if he were in the room. "'It is awful. I think I must be mad.' "'If you really were mad,' said the young man, "'you would think you must be sane. "'But certainly there seems to me to be something a little rum "'about this unseen gentleman. Two heads are better than one. "'I spare you allusions to any other organs.' And really, if you would allow me, as a sturdy, practical man, to bring back the wedding cake out of the window. Even as he spoke, there was a sort of steely shriek in the street outside, and a small motor, driven at devilish speed, shot up to the door of the shop and stuck there. In the same flash of time, a small man in a shiny top hat stood stamping in the outer room. Angus, who had hitherto maintained hilarious ease from motives of mental hygiene, revealed the strain of his soul by striding abruptly out of the inner room and confronting the newcomer. A glance at him was quite sufficient to confirm the savage guesswork of a man in love. This very dapper but dwarfish figure, with the spike of black beard carried insolently forward, the clever unrestful eyes, the neat but very nervous fingers, could be none other than the man just described to him, Isidore Smythe, who made dolls out of banana skins and matchboxes. boxes Isidore Smythe, who made millions out of undrinking butlers and unflirting housemaids of metal. For a moment the two men, instinctively understanding each other's air of possession, "'looked at each other with that curious cold generosity "'which is the soul of rivalry. "'Mr. Smythe, however, made no allusion "'to the ultimate ground of their antagonism, "'but said simply and explosively, "'Has Miss Hope seen that thing on the window?' "'On the window?' repeated the staring Angus. "'There's no time to explain other things,' "'said the small millionaire shortly.' "'There's some tomfoolery going on here "'that has to be investigated.' "'He pointed his polished walking-stick at the window, "'recently depleted by the bridal preparations of Mr. Angus, "'and that gentleman was astonished to see, "'along the front of the glass, "'a long strip of paper pasted, "'which had certainly not been on the window "'when he looked through it some time before. "'Following the energetic Smythe outside into the street,' he found that some yard and a half of stamp paper had been carefully gummed along the glass outside, and on this was written in straggly characters, "'If you marry Smythe, he will die.'" "'Laura,' said Angus, putting his big red head into the shop, "'you're not mad.'" "'It's the writing of that fellow Welkin,' said Smythe gruffly. "'I haven't seen him for years, but he's always bothering me. Five times in the last fortnight "'he's had threatening letters left at my flat, "'and I can't even find out who leaves them, "'let alone if it is Welkin himself. "'The porter of the flat swears "'that no suspicious characters have been seen, "'and here he has pasted up a sort of dado "'on a public shop window, "'while the people in the shop... "'Quite so.' said Angus modestly, while the people in the shop were having tea. "'Well, sir, I can assure you "'I appreciate your common sense "'in dealing so directly with the matter. "'We can talk about other things afterwards. "'The fellow cannot be very far off yet, "'for I swear there was no paper there "'when I went last to the window ten or fifteen minutes ago. "'On the other hand,' "'he's too far off to be chased, "'as we don't even know the direction. "'If you'll take my advice, Mr. Smythe, "'you'll put this at once in the hands "'of some energetic inquiry man, "'private rather than public. "'I know an extremely clever fellow "'who has set up in business five minutes from here in your car. "'His name's Flambeau, "'and though his youth was a bit stormy, "'he's a strictly honest man now.' "'and his brains are worth money. "'He lives in Lucknow Mansions, Hampstead. "'That is odd,' said the little man, "'arching his black eyebrows. "'I live, myself, in Himalaya Mansions, round the corner. "'Perhaps you might care to come with me. "'I can go to my rooms and sort out these queer welcome documents "'while you run round and get your friend the detective.' "'You are very good,' said Angus politely. "'Well, the sooner we act, the better.' "'Both men, with a queer kind of impromptu fairness, "'took the same sort of formal farewell of the lady "'and both jumped into the brisk little car. "'As Smythe took the handles "'and they turned the great corner of the street, "'Angus was amused to see a gigantesque poster "'of Smythe's silent service.' with a picture of a huge, headless iron doll, carrying a saucepan with the legend, a cook who was never cross. "'I'd use them in my own flat,' said the little black-bearded man, laughing, "'partly for advertisements, and partly for real convenience. "'Honestly, and all above board, "'those big clockwork dolls of mine "'do bring your coals or claret or a timetable,' quicker than any live servants I've ever known, if you know which knob to press. But I'll never deny, between ourselves, that such servants have their disadvantages, too. Indeed, said Angus, is there something they can't do? Yes, replied Smythe coolly. They can't tell me who left those threatening letters at my flat. The man's motor was small and swift like himself. In fact, like his domestic service, it was of his own invention. If he was an advertising quack, he was one who believed in his own wares. The sense of something tiny and flying was accentuated as they swept up long white curves of road in the dead but open daylight of evening. Soon the white curves came sharper and dizzier, they were upon ascending spirals, as they say in the modern religions. For, indeed, they were cresting a corner of London, which is almost as precipitous as Edinburgh, if not quite so picturesque. Terrace rose above Terrace, and the special tower of flats they sought rose above them all to almost Egyptian height, gilt by the level sunset. The change, as they turned the corner, and entered the crescent known as Himalaya Mansions, was as abrupt as the opening of a window, for they found that pile of flats sitting above London as above a green sea of slate. Opposite to the mansions, on the other side of the gravel crescent, was a bushy enclosure more like a steep hedge or dike than a garden, and some way below that ran a strip of artificial water, a sort of canal like the moat of that embowered fortress. As the car swept round the crescent it passed, at one corner, the stray stall of a man selling chestnuts, and right away at the other end of the curve Angus could see a dim blue policeman walking slowly. These were the only human shapes in that high suburban solitude, but he had an irrational sense that they expressed the speechless poetry of London. He felt as if they were figures in a story. The little car shot up to the right house like a bullet, and shot out its owner like a bombshell. He was immediately inquiring of a tall commissionaire in shining braid, and a short porter in shirt sleeves, whether anybody or anything had been seeking his apartments. He was assured that nobody and nothing had passed these officials since his last inquiries, whereupon he and the slightly bewildered Angus were shot up in the lift like a rocket, till they reached the top floor. "'Just come in for a minute,' said the breathless Smythe. "'I want to show you those Welkin letters. Then you might run round the corner and fetch your friend.' He pressed a button concealed in the wall, and the door opened of itself." It opened on a long, commodious anteroom, of which the only arresting features, ordinarily speaking, were the rows of tall, half-human mechanical figures that stood up on both sides like tailor's dummies. Like tailor's dummies, they were headless, and like tailor's dummies, they had a handsome, unnecessary humpiness in the shoulders, and a pigeon-breasted protuberance of chest but barring this, they were not much more like a human figure than any automatic machine at a station that is about the human height. They had two great hooks like arms, for carrying trays, and they were painted pea-green, or vermilion, or black, for convenience of distinction. In every other way, they were only automatic machines, and nobody would have looked twice at them. On this occasion, at least, nobody did. For between the two rows of these domestic dummies lay something more interesting than most of the mechanics of the world. It was a white, tattered scrap of paper scrawled with red ink, and the agile inventor had snatched it up almost as soon as the door flew open. He handed it to Angus without a word. The red ink on it "'actually was not dry, and the message ran, "'If you have been to see her today, I shall kill you.' "'There was a short silence, and then Isidore Smythe said quietly, "'Would you like a little whiskey? I rather feel as if I should.' "'Thank you. I should like a little flambeau,' said Angus, gloomily. "'This business seems to me to be getting rather grave. "'I'm going round at once to fetch him.' "'Right you are,' said the other, with admirable cheerfulness. "'Bring him round here as quick as you can.' "'But as Angus closed the front door behind him, "'he saw Smythe push back a button, "'and one of the clockwork images glided from its place "'and slid along a groove in the floor "'carrying a tray with siphon and decanter.' There did seem something a trifle weird about leaving the little man alone among those dead servants, who were coming to life as the door closed. Six steps down from Smythe's Landing, the man in shirt sleeves was doing something with a pail. Angus stopped to extract a promise, fortified with a prospective bribe, that he would remain in that place until the return with the detective and would keep count of any kind of stranger coming up those stairs. Dashing down to the front hall, he then laid similar charges of vigilance on the commissionaire at the front door, from whom he learned the simplifying circumstances that there was no back door. Not content with this, he captured the floating policeman and induced him to stand opposite the entrance and watch it and finally paused an instant for a pennyworth of chestnuts, and an inquiry as to the probable length of the merchant's stay in the neighbourhood. The chestnut-seller, turning up the collar of his coat, told him he should probably be moving shortly, as he thought it was going to snow. Indeed, the evening was growing grey and bitter, but Angus, with all his eloquence, "'proceeded to nail the chestnut man to his post. "'Keep yourself warm on your own chestnuts,' he said earnestly. "'Eat up your whole stock. "'I'll make it worth your while. "'I'll give you a sovereign if you'll wait here till I come back "'and then tell me whether any man, woman, or child "'has gone into that house where the commissionaire is standing.' "'He then walked away smartly with a last look at the besieged tower. "'I've made a ring round that room, anyhow,' he said. "'They can't all four of them be Mr. Welkin's accomplices.' Lucknow mansions were, so to speak, on a lower platform of that hill of houses, of which Himalaya mansions might be called the peak. Mr. Flambeau's semi-official flat was on the ground floor, and presented in every way a marked contrast to the American machinery and cold hotel-like luxury of the flat of the silent service. Flambeau, who was a friend of Angus, received him in a rococo artistic den behind his office, of which the ornaments were sabers, harquebuses, eastern curiosities, flasks of Italian wine, savage cooking pots, a plumy Persian cat, "'and a small, dusty-looking Roman Catholic priest "'who looked particularly out of place. "'This is my friend Father Brown,' said Flambeau. "'I've often wanted you to meet him. "'Splendid weather, this. "'A little cold for Southerners like me.' "'Yes, I think it will keep clear,' said Angus, "'sitting down on a violet-striped eastern ottoman.' No, said the priest quietly, it has begun to snow. And, indeed, as he spoke, the first few flakes foreseen by the man of chestnuts began to drift across the darkening window-pane. Well, said Angus heavily, I'm afraid I've come on business, and rather jumpy business at that. The fact is, Flambeau, Within a stone's throw of your house is a fellow who badly wants your help. He's perpetually being haunted and threatened by an invisible enemy, a scoundrel whom nobody has even seen. As Angus proceeded to tell the whole story of Smythe and Welkin, beginning with Laura's story, and going on with his own, the supernatural laugh at the corner of two empty streets, the strange distinct words spoken in an empty room. Flambeau grew more and more vividly concerned, and the little priest seemed to be left out of it like a piece of furniture. When it came to the scribbled stamp paper pasted on the window, Flambeau rose, seeming to fill the room with his huge shoulders. "'If you don't mind,' he said, I think you had better tell me the rest on the nearest road to this man's house. It strikes me, somehow, that there is no time to be lost. Delighted, said Angus, rising also, though he's safe enough for the present, for I've set four men to watch the only hole to his burrow. They turned out into the street, the small priest trundling after them with the docility of a small dog. "'he merely said, in a cheerful way, like one making conversation, "'how quick the snow gets thick on the ground!' "'As they threaded the steep side-streets, already powdered with silver, "'Angus finished his story, "'and by the time they reached the crescent with the towering flats, "'he had leisure to turn his attention to the four sentinels. "'The chestnut-seller, both before and after receiving a sovereign,' "'swore stubbornly that he had watched the door "'and seen no visitor enter. "'The policeman was even more emphatic. "'He said he had had experience of crooks of all kinds, "'in top hats and in rags. "'He wasn't so green as to expect suspicious characters "'to look suspicious. "'He looked out for anybody, "'and, so help him, there had been nobody.' and when all three men gathered round the gilded commissionaire, who still stood smiling astride of the porch, the verdict was more final still. "'I've got a right to ask any man, duke or dustman, what he wants in these flats,' said the genial and gold-laced giant, "'and I'll swear there's been nobody to ask since this gentleman went away.'" The unimportant Father Brown who stood back, looking modestly at the pavement, here ventured to say meekly, "'Has nobody been up and down stairs, then, since the snow began to fall? It began while we were all round at Flambeau's.' "'Nobody's been in here, sir. You can take it from me,' said the official, with beaming authority. "'Then I wonder what that is,' said the priest.' "'and stared at the ground blankly like a fish. "'The others all looked down also, "'and Flambeau used a fierce exclamation "'and a French gesture. "'For it was unquestionably true "'that down the middle of the entrance, "'guarded by the man in gold lace, "'actually between the arrogant stretched legs "'of that colossus, "'ran a stringy pattern of grey footprints "'stamped upon the white snow.' "'God!' cried Angus involuntarily. "'The invisible man!' "'Without another word he turned and dashed up the stairs, "'with Flambeau following, "'but Father Brown still stood looking about him "'in the snow-clad street, "'as if he had lost interest in his query. "'Flambeau was plainly in a mood "'to break down the door with his big shoulders, "'but the Scotchman, with more reason,' if less intuition, fumbled about on the frame of the door till he found the invisible button, and the door swung slowly open. It showed substantially the same serried interior. The hall had grown darker, though it was still struck here and there with the last crimson shafts of sunset, and one or two of the headless machines had been moved from their places for this or that purpose." "'and stood here or there about the twilight place. "'The green and red of their coats were all darkened in the dusk, "'and their likeness to human shapes "'slightly increased by their very shapelessness. "'But in the middle of the mall, "'exactly where the paper with the red ink had lain, "'there lay something that looked like red ink "'spilt out of its bottle. "'But it was not red ink.' With a French combination of reason and violence, Flambeau simply said, "'Murder!' and, plunging into the flat, had explored every corner and cupboard of it in five minutes. But if he expected to find a corpse, he found none. Isidore Smythe was not in the place, either dead or alive. After the most tearing search, the two men met each other in the outer hall, with streaming faces and staring eyes. My friend, said Flambeau, talking French in his excitement, not only is your murderer invisible, but he makes invisible also the murdered man. Angus looked round at the dim room full of dummies, and in some Celtic corner of his Scotch soul, a shudder started. One of the life sized dolls stood immediately overshadowing the blood-stain, summoned, perhaps, by the slain man an instant before he fell. One of the high-shouldered hooks that served the thing for arms was a little lifted, and Angus had suddenly the horrid fancy that poor Smythe's own iron child had struck him down. Matter had rebelled, and these machines had killed their master but even so, what had they done with him? "'Eaten him?' said the nightmare at his ear, and he sickened for an instant at the idea of rent human remains absorbed and crushed into all that acephalous clockwork. He recovered his mental health by an emphatic effort and said to Flambeau, "'Well, there it is.' THE POOR FELLOW HAS EVAPORATED LIKE A CLOUD AND LEFT A RED STREAK ON THE FLOOR. THE TALE DOES NOT BELONG TO THIS WORLD. THERE IS ONLY ONE THING TO BE DONE, SAID FLAMBEAU, WHETHER IT BELONGS TO THIS WORLD OR THE OTHER. I MUST GO DOWN AND TALK TO MY FRIEND. THEY DESCENDED, PASSING THE MAN WITH THE pail, WHO AGAIN ASSEVERATED THAT HE HAD LET NO INTRUDER PASS down to the commissionaire and the hovering chestnut man, who rigidly reasserted their own watchfulness. But when Angus looked round for his fourth confirmation, he could not see it, and called out with some nervousness, "'Where is the policeman?' "'I beg your pardon,' said Father Brown. "'That is my fault. "'I just sent him down the road to investigate something "'that I just thought worth investigating.' "'Well, we want him back pretty soon,' said Angus abruptly. "'For the wretched man upstairs has not only been murdered, but wiped out.' "'How?' asked the priest. "'Father,' said Flambeau, after a pause, "'upon my soul I believe it is more in your department than mine. "'No friend or foe has entered the house, but Smythe is gone, "'as if stolen by the fairies.' "'If that is not supernatural, I—' "'As he spoke, they were all checked by an unusual sight. "'The big blue policeman came round the corner of the crescent, running. "'He came straight up to Brown. "'You're right, sir,' he panted. "'They've just found poor Mr. Smythe's body in the canal down below.' "'Angus put his hand wildly to his head. "'Did he run down and drown himself?' he asked. "'He never came down, I'll swear,' said the constable. "'And he wasn't drowned, either, for he died of a great stab over the heart.' "'And yet you saw no one enter?' said Flambeau, in a grave voice. "'Let us walk down the road a little,' said the priest. As they reached the other end of the crescent, he observed abruptly, "'Stupid of me!' "'I forgot to ask the policeman something. "'I wonder if they found a light brown sack.' "'Why a light brown sack?' asked Angus, astonished. "'Because if it was any other colored sack, "'the case must begin over again,' said Father Brown. "'But if it was a light brown sack, why, the case is finished.' "'I am pleased to hear it,' said Angus, with hearty irony.' It hasn't begun, so far as I am concerned. "'You must tell us all about it,' said Flambeau, with a strange, heavy simplicity, like a child. Unconsciously they were walking with quickening steps down the long sweep of road on the other side of the high crescent, Father Brown leading briskly, though in silence. At last he said, with an almost touching vagueness, well, I'm afraid you'll think it so prosy. We always begin at the abstract end of things, and you can't begin this story anywhere else. Have you ever noticed this, that men never answer what you say? They answer what you mean, or what they think you mean. Suppose one lady says to another in a country house, Is anybody staying with you? The lady doesn't answer, Yes, "'the butler, the three footmen, the parlor-maid, and so on, "'though the parlor-maid may be in the room "'or the butler behind her chair. "'She says, "'There is nobody staying with us, "'meaning nobody of the sort you mean. "'But suppose a doctor inquiring into an epidemic asks, "'Who is staying in the house? "'Then the lady will remember the butler, "'the parlor-maid, and the rest.' All language is used like that. You never get a question answered literally, even when you get it answered truly. When those four quite honest men said that no man had gone into the mansions, they did not really mean that no man had gone into them. They meant no man whom they could suspect of being your man. A man did go into the house and did come out of it, but they never noticed him. "'An invisible man?' inquired Angus, raising his red eyebrows. "'A mentally invisible man,' said Father Brown. "'A minute or two after, he resumed in the same unassuming voice, "'like a man thinking his way. "'Of course you can't think of such a man until you do think of him. "'That's where his cleverness comes in. "'but I came to think of him through two or three little things "'in the tale Mr. Angus told us. First, there was the fact that this welkin went for long walks. "'And then there was the vast lot of stamp-paper on the window. "'And then, most of all, "'there were the two things the young lady said, "'things that couldn't be true. "'Don't get annoyed,' he added hastily, "'noting a sudden movement of the Scotchman's head.' She thought they were true. A person can't be quite alone in a street a second before she receives a letter. She can't be quite alone in a street when she starts reading a letter just received. There must be somebody pretty near her. He must be mentally invisible. Why must there be somebody near her? asked Angus. Because, said Father Brown, barring carrier pigeons... "'Somebody must have brought her the letter.' "'Do you really mean to say,' asked Flambeau with energy, "'that Welkin carried his rival's letters to his lady?' "'Yes,' said the priest. "'Welkin carried his rival's letters to his lady. "'You see, he had to.' "'Oh, I can't stand much more of this,' exploded Flambeau. "'Who is this fellow? What does he look like?' What is the usual get-up of a mentally invisible man? "'He is dressed rather handsomely, in red, blue, and gold,' replied the priest promptly with precision. "'And in this striking and even showy costume he entered Himalaya mansions under eight human eyes, he killed Smythe in cold blood, and came down into the street again, carrying the dead body in his arms. "'Reverend Sir,' "'Cried Angus, standing still. "'Are you raving mad, or am I?' "'You are not mad,' said Brown, "'only a little unobservant. "'You have not noticed such a man as this, for example.' "'He took three quick strides forward "'and put his hand on the shoulder "'of an ordinary passing postman "'who had bustled by them unnoticed "'under the shade of the trees.' "'Nobody ever notices postmen somehow,' he said thoughtfully. "'Yet they have passions like other men, "'and even carry large bags "'where a small corpse can be stowed quite easily.' "'The postman, instead of turning naturally, "'had ducked and tumbled against the garden fence. "'He was a lean, fair-bearded man "'of very ordinary appearance, "'but as he turned an alarmed face over his shoulder,' All three men were fixed with an almost fiendish squint. Flambeau went back to his sabers, purple rugs, and Persian cat, having many things to attend to. John Turnbull Angus went back to the lady at the shop, with whom that imprudent young man contrives to be extremely comfortable. But Father Brown walked those snow-covered hills under the stars for many hours with a murderer, and what they said to each other will never be known. End of The Invisible Man This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, Or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg. www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton. The Honor of Israel Gow. A stormy evening of olive and silver was closing in, as Father Brown, wrapped in a gray Scotch plaid, came to the end of a gray Scotch valley and beheld the strange castle of Glengyle. It stopped one end of the glen or hollow like a blind alley, and it looked like the end of the world. Rising in steep roofs and spires of sea-green slate in the manner of the old french scotch chateau it reminded an englishman of the sinister steeple hats of witches and fairy tales and the pine woods that rocked round the green turrets looked by comparison as black as numberless flocks of ravens this note of a dreamy almost sleepy devilry was no mere fancy from the landscape for there did rest on the place one of those clouds of pride and madness and mysterious sorrow, which lie more heavily on the noble houses of Scotland than on any other of the children of men. For Scotland has a double dose of the poison called heredity, the sense of blood in the aristocrat, and the sense of doom in the Calvinist. The priest had snatched a day from his business at Glasgow, to meet his friend Flambeau, the amateur detective, who was at Glengyle Castle with another more formal officer investigating the life and death of the late Earl of Glengyle. That mysterious person was the last representative of a race whose valor, insanity, and violent cunning had made them terrible even among the sinister nobility of their nation in the sixteenth century. None were deeper in that labyrinthine ambition, in chamber within chamber of that palace of lies that was built up around Mary, Queen of Scots. The rhyme in the countryside attested the motive and the result of their machinations candidly. As green sap to the simmer trees is red gold to the Ogilvies. For many centuries there had never been a decent lord in Glengill Castle, and with the Victorian era one would have thought that all the eccentricities were exhausted. The last glengyle however, satisfied his tribal tradition by doing the only thing that was left for him to do. He disappeared. I do not mean that he went abroad. By all accounts he was still in the castle, if he was anywhere but though his name was in the church register and the big red peerage, nobody ever saw him under the sun. If anyone saw him, it was a solitary man-servant, something between a groom and a gardener. He was so deaf that the more businesslike assumed him to be dumb, while the more penetrating declared him to be half-witted. A gaunt, red-haired laborer "'with a dogged jaw and chin, but quite blank blue eyes. "'He went by the name of Israel Gao, "'and was the one silent servant on that deserted estate. "'But the energy with which he dug potatoes, "'and the regularity with which he disappeared into the kitchen, "'gave people an impression that he was providing "'for the meals of a superior, "'and that the strange earl was still concealed in the castle.' If society needed any further proof that he was there, the servant persistently asserted that he was not at home. One morning the provost and the minister, for the Glengiles were Presbyterian, were summoned to the castle. There they found that the gardener, groom, and cook had added to his many professions that of an undertaker, and had nailed up his noble master in a coffin." with how much or how little further inquiry this odd fact was passed, did not as yet very plainly appear, for the thing had never been legally investigated till Flambeau had gone north two or three days before. By then the body of Lord Glengyle, if it was the body, had lain for some time in the little churchyard on the hill. As Father Brown passed through the dim garden and came under the shadow of the chateau, "'the clouds were thick, and the whole air damp and thundery. "'Against the last stripe of the green-gold sunset "'he saw a black human silhouette, "'a man in a chimney-pot hat, "'with a big spade over his shoulder. "'The combination was queerly suggestive of a sexton, "'but when Brown remembered the deaf servant who dug potatoes, "'he thought it natural enough. "'He knew something of the Scotch peasant.' He knew the respectability, which might well feel it necessary to wear blacks for an official inquiry. He knew also the economy that would not lose an hour's digging for that. Even the man's start and suspicious stare as the priest went by were consonant enough with the vigilance and jealousy of such a type. The great door was opened by Flambeau himself, who had with him a lean man with iron-gray hair and papers in his hand, Inspector Craven from Scotland Yard. The entrance hall was mostly stripped and empty, but the pale, sneering faces of one or two of the wicked Ogilvies looked down out of black periwigs and blackening canvas. Following them into an inner room, Father Brown found that the Allies had been seated at a long oak table, of which their end was covered with scribbled papers, flanked with whiskey and cigars. Through the whole of its remaining length, it was occupied by detached objects arranged at intervals, objects about as inexplicable as any objects could be. One looked like a small heap of glittering broken glass. "'another looked like a high heap of brown dust. "'A third appeared to be a plain stick of wood. "'You seem to have a sort of geological museum here,' he said, "'as he sat down, jerking his head briefly "'in the direction of the brown dust and the crystalline fragments. "'Not a geological museum,' replied Flambeau. "'Say, a psychological museum.' "'Oh, for the Lord's sake!' cried the police detective, laughing. "'Don't let's begin with such long words.' "'Don't you know what psychology means?' asked Flambeau, with friendly surprise. "'Psychology means being off your chump.' "'Still I hardly follow,' replied the official. "'Well,' said Flambeau, with decision, I MEAN THAT WE'VE ONLY FOUND OUT ONE THING ABOUT LORD glengyle HE WAS A MANIAC. THE BLACK silhouette OF GOW, WITH HIS TOP HAT AND SPADE, PASSED THE WINDOW, DIMLY OUTLINED AGAINST THE DARKENING SKY. FATHER BROWN STARED PASSIVELY AT IT AND ANSWERED, I CAN UNDERSTAND THERE MUST HAVE BEEN SOMETHING ODD ABOUT THE MAN, OR HE WOULDN'T HAVE BURIED HIMSELF ALIVE, NOR BEEN IN SUCH A HURRY TO BURY HIMSELF DEAD. "'But what makes you think it was lunacy?' "'Well,' said Flambeau, "'you just listen to the list of things Mr. Craven has found in the house.' "'We must get a candle,' said Craven, suddenly. "'A storm is getting up, and it's too dark to read.' "'Have you found any candles?' asked Brown, smiling. "'Among your oddities?' Flambeau raised a grave face and fixed his dark eyes on his friend." "'That is curious, too,' he said. Twenty-five candles, and not a trace of a candlestick.' In the rapidly darkening room and rapidly rising wind, Brown went along the table to where a bundle of wax candles lay among the other scrappy exhibits. As he did so, he bent accidentally over the heap of red-brown dust, and a sharp sneeze cracked the silence. "'Hello!' he said, snuff. He took one of the candles, lit it carefully, came back and stuck it in the neck of the whiskey bottle. The unrestful night air, blowing through the crazy window, waved the long flame like a banner, and on every side of the castle they could hear the miles and miles of black pine wood seething like a black sea around a rock. "'I will read the inventory,' began Craven gravely, picking up one of the papers. "'The inventory of what we found loose and unexplained in the castle. "'You are to understand that the place generally was dismantled and neglected, "'but one or two rooms had plainly been inhabited in a simple but not squalid style by somebody, "'somebody who was not the servant Gow. "'The list is as follows.' First item: a very considerable hoard of precious stones, nearly all diamonds, and all of them loose, without any setting whatever. Of course, it is natural that the Ogilvy should have family jewels, but those are exactly the jewels that are almost always set in particular articles of ornament. The Ogilvies would seem to have kept theirs loose in their pockets, like coppers. Second item. Heaps and heaps of loose snuff, not kept in a horn, or even a pouch, but lying in heaps on the mantelpieces, on the sideboard, on the piano, anywhere. It looks as if the old gentleman would not take the trouble to look in a pocket, or lift a lid. Third item. Here and there about the house, curious little heaps of minute pieces of metal, some like steel springs and some in the form of microscopic wheels, as if they had gutted some mechanical toy. Fourth item. The wax candles, which have to be stuck in bottlenecks because there is nothing else to stick them in. Now I wish you to note how very much queerer all this is than anything we anticipated. For the central riddle we are prepared. We have all seen at a glance that there was something wrong about the last earl. We have come here to find out whether he really lived here, whether he really died here, whether that red-haired scarecrow who did his burying had anything to do with his dying. But suppose the worst in all this, the most lurid or melodramatic solution you like. Suppose the servant really killed the master, or suppose the master isn't really dead, or suppose the master is dressed up as the servant or suppose the servant is buried for the master. Invent what Wilkie Collins tragedy you like, and you still have not explained a candle without a candlestick, or why an elderly gentleman of good family should habitually spill snuff on the piano. The core of the tale we could imagine. It is the fringes that are mysterious. By no stretch of fancy can the human mind connect together snuff and diamonds and wax and loose clockwork. I think I see the connection, said the priest. This Glengyle was mad against the French Revolution. He was an enthusiast for the Ancien Regime, and was trying to reenact literally the family life of the last Bourbons. He had snuff because it was the 18th century luxury, wax candles because they were the 18th century lighting. The mechanical bits of iron represent the locksmith hobby of Louis XVI. The diamonds are for the diamond necklace of Marie Antoinette. Both the other men were staring at him with round eyes. What a perfectly extraordinary notion, cried Flambeau. Do you really think that is the truth? I am perfectly sure it isn't, answered Father Brown. Only you said that nobody could connect snuff and diamonds and clockwork and candles. I give you that connection offhand the real truth i am very sure lies deeper he paused a moment and listened to the wailing of the wind in the turrets then he said the late earl of glengyle was a thief he lived a second and darker life as a desperate housebreaker he did not have any candlesticks because he only used these candles cut short in the little lantern he carried the snuff he employed as the fiercest French criminals have used pepper, to fling it suddenly in dense masses in the face of a captor or pursuer. But the final proof is in the curious coincidence of the diamonds and the small steel wheels. Surely that makes everything plain to you. Diamonds and small steel wheels are the only two instruments with which you can cut out a pane of glass." The bough of a broken pine tree lashed heavily in the blast against the windowpane behind them, as if in parody of a burglar, but they did not turn round. Their eyes were fastened on Father Brown. Diamonds and small wheels, repeated Craven, ruminating. Is that all that makes you think it, the true explanation? I don't think it, the true explanation, replied the priest placidly. "'but you said that nobody could connect the four things. "'The true tale, of course, is something much more humdrum. Glengyle had found, or thought he had found, "'precious stones on his estate. "'Somebody had bamboozled him with those loose brilliants, "'saying they were found in the castle caverns. "'The little wheels are some diamond-cutting affair. "'He had to do the thing very roughly, and in a small way.' "'with the help of a few shepherds or rude fellows on these hills. "'Snuff is the one great luxury of such Scotch shepherds. "'It's the one thing with which you can bribe them. "'They didn't have candlesticks because they didn't want them. "'They held the candles in their hands when they explored the caves.' "'Is that all?' asked Flambeau after a long pause. "'Have we got to the dull truth at last?' Oh, no, said Father Brown. As the wind died in the most distant pine woods with a long hoot as of mockery, Father Brown, with an utterly impassive face, went on. I only suggested that because you said one could not plausibly connect snuff with clockwork or candles with bright stones. Ten false philosophies will fit the universe, ten false theories will fit Glengyle Castle. "'but we want the real explanation of the castle "'and the universe. "'But are there no other exhibits?' "'Craven laughed, "'and Flambeau rose smiling to his feet "'and strolled down the long table. "'Items five, six, seven, etc., he said, "'and certainly more varied than instructive. "'A curious collection, not of lead pencils,' "'but of the lead out of lead pencils. "'A senseless stick of bamboo, with the top rather splintered. "'It might be the instrument of the crime. "'Only there isn't any crime. "'The only other things are a few old missiles "'and little Catholic pictures, which the Ogilvies kept, "'I suppose, from the Middle Ages, "'their family pride being stronger than their Puritanism.' We only put them in the museum because they seem curiously cut about and defaced. The heady tempest without drove a dreadful rack of clouds across Glengyle and through the long room into darkness as Father Brown picked up the little illuminated pages to examine them. He spoke before the drift of darkness had passed, but it was the voice of an utterly new man. "'Mr. Craven,' "'said he, talking like a man ten years younger. "'You have got a legal warrant, have you, "'to go up and examine that grave? "'The sooner we do it the better "'and get to the bottom of this horrible affair. "'If I were you, I should start now.' "'Now?' repeated the astonished detective. "'And why now?' "'Because this is serious,' answered Brown. This is not spilt snuff or loose pebbles that might be there for a hundred reasons. There is only one reason I know of for this being done, and the reason goes down to the roots of the world. These religious pictures are not just dirtied or torn or scrawled over, which might be done in idleness or bigotry, by children or by Protestants. These have been treated very carefully and very queerly, "'In every place where the great ornamented name of God "'comes in the old illuminations, "'it has been elaborately taken out. "'The only other thing that has been removed "'is the halo round the head of the child Jesus. "'Therefore, I say, "'let us get our warrant and our spade and our hatchet "'and go up and break open that coffin.' "'What do you mean?' demanded the London officer. "'I mean,' "'answered the little priest, "'and his voice seemed to rise slightly "'in the roar of the gale. "'I mean that the great devil of the universe "'may be sitting on the top tower of this castle "'at this moment, as big as a hundred elephants, "'and roaring like the apocalypse. "'There is black magic somewhere at the bottom of this.' "'Black magic,' repeated Flambeau in a low voice, "'for he was too enlightened a man "'not to know of such things.' But what can these other things mean? Oh, something damnable, I suppose, replied Brown impatiently. How should I know? How can I guess all their mazes down below? Perhaps you can make a torture out of snuff and bamboo. Perhaps lunatics lust after wax and steel filings. Perhaps there is a maddening drug made of lead pencils. Our shortest cut to the mystery is up the hill to the grave. His comrades hardly knew that they had obeyed and followed him, till a blast of the night wind nearly flung them on their faces in the garden. Nevertheless, they had obeyed him like automata, for Craven found a hatchet in his hand, and the warrant in his pocket. Flambeau was carrying the heavy spade of the strange gardener. Father Brown was carrying the little gilt book, from which had been torn the name of God the path up the hill to the churchyard was crooked but short. Only under that stress of wind it seemed laborious and long. Far as the eye could see, farther and farther as they mounted the slope, were seas beyond seas of pines, now all a slope one way under the wind. And that universal gesture seemed as vain as it was vast, as vain as if that wind were whistling about some unpeopled and purposeless planet. Through all that infinite growth of gray-blue forest sang, shrill and high, that ancient sorrow that is in the heart of all heathen things. One could fancy that the voices from the underworld of unfathomable foliage were cries of the lost and wandering pagan gods, gods who had gone roaming in that irrational forest, and who will never find their way back to heaven. "'You see,' said Father Brown, in low but easy tone, "'Scotch people before Scotland existed were a curious lot. "'In fact, they're a curious lot still. "'But in the prehistoric times I fancy they really worshipped demons. "'That,' he added genially, "'is why they jumped at the Puritan theology.' "'My friend,' said Flambeau, turning in a kind of fury, "'what does all that snuff mean?' "'My friend,' replied Brown, with equal seriousness, "'there is one mark of all genuine religions—materialism. "'Now, devil-worship is a perfectly genuine religion.' "'They had come up on the grassy scalp of the hill,' one of the few bald spots that stood clear of the crashing and roaring pine forest. A mean enclosure, partly timber and partly wire, rattled in the tempest to tell them the border of the graveyard. But by the time Inspector Craven had come to the corner of the grave, and Flambeau had planted his spade point downwards and leaned on it, they were both almost as shaken as the shaky wood and wire. At the foot of the grave grew great tall thistles, gray and silver in their decay. Once or twice, when a ball of thistle-down broke under the breeze and flew past him, Craven jumped slightly, as if it had been an arrow. Flambeau drove the blade of his spade through the whistling grass into the wet clay below. Then he seemed to stop and lean on it as on a staff. "'Go on.' "'said the priest very gently. "'We are only trying to find the truth. "'What are you afraid of?' "'I am afraid of finding it,' said Flambeau. "'The London detective spoke suddenly in a high, crowing voice "'that was meant to be conversational and cheery. "'I wonder why he really did hide himself like that. "'Something nasty, I suppose. "'Was he a leper?' "'Something worse than that,' said Flambeau. "'And what do you imagine?' asked the other. "'Would be worse than a leper?' "'I don't imagine it,' said Flambeau. "'He dug for some dreadful minutes in silence, "'and then said in a choked voice, "'I am afraid of his not being the right shape.' "'Nor was that piece of paper, you know,' said Father Brown quietly." and we survived even that piece of paper. Flambeau dug on with a blind energy, but the tempest had shouldered away the choking gray clouds that clung to the hills like smoke and revealed gray fields of faint starlight before he cleared the shape of a rude timber coffin and somehow tipped it up upon the turf. Craven stepped forward with his axe. A thistletop touched him, and he flinched. Then he took a firmer stride, and hacked and wrenched with an energy like Flambeau's, till the lid was torn off, and all that was there lay glimmering in the grey starlight. "'Bones,' said Craven, and then he added, "'but it is a man,' as if that were something unexpected. "'Is he?' asked Flambeau, in a voice that went oddly up and down. "'Is he all, all right?' "'Seems so,' said the officer huskily, "'bending over the obscure and decaying skeleton in the box. "'Wait a minute. "'A vast heave went over Flambeau's huge figure. "'And now I come to think of it,' he cried, "'why in the name of madness shouldn't he be all right? "'What is it that gets hold of a man on these cursed cold mountains? "'I think it's the black, brainless repetition,' All these forests, and over all an ancient horror of unconsciousness, it's like the dream of an atheist, pine trees and more pine trees, and millions more pine trees. God cried the man by the coffin, but he hasn't got a head while the others stood rigid. The priest, for the first time, showed a leap of startled concern. No head, he repeated. No head? As if he had almost expected some other deficiency. Half-witted visions of a headless baby born to Glengile, of a headless youth hiding himself in the castle, of a headless man pacing those ancient halls or that gorgeous garden, passed in panorama through their minds. But even in that stiffened instant the tale took no root in them, "'and seemed to have no reason in it. "'They stood listening to the loud woods "'and the shrieking sky quite foolishly, "'like exhausted animals. "'Thought seemed to be something enormous "'that had suddenly slipped out of their grasp. "'There are three headless men,' said Father Brown, "'standing round this open grave. "'The pale detective from London opened his mouth to speak,' "'and left it open like a yokel, "'while a long scream of wind tore the sky. "'Then he looked at the axe in his hands "'as if it did not belong to him, "'and dropped it. "'Father,' said Flambeau, "'in that infantile and heavy voice he used very seldom, "'what are we to do?' "'His friend's reply came with the pent promptitude "'of a gun going off. "'Sleep!' cried Father Brown. Sleep. We have come to the end of the ways. Do you know what sleep is? Do you know that every man who sleeps believes in God? It is a sacrament, for it is an act of faith, and it is a food. And we need a sacrament, if only a natural one. Something has fallen on us that falls very seldom on men, perhaps the worst thing that can fall on them craven's parted lips came together to say what do you mean the priest had turned his face to the castle as he answered we have found the truth and the truth makes no sense he went down the path in front of them with a plunging and reckless step very rare with him and when they reached the castle again he threw himself upon sleep with the simplicity of a dog Despite his mystic praise of slumber, Father Brown was up earlier than anyone else except the silent gardener, and was found smoking a big pipe and watching that expert at his speechless labors in the kitchen garden. Towards daybreak, the rocking storm had ended in roaring rains, and the day came with a curious freshness. The gardener seemed even to have been conversing, but at sight of the detectives, He planted his spade sullenly in a bed and, saying something about his breakfast, shifted along the lines of cabbages and shut himself in the kitchen. "'He's a valuable man, that,' said Father Brown. "'He does the potatoes amazingly. "'Still,' he added, with a dispassionate charity, "'he has his faults, which of us hasn't. "'He doesn't dig this bank quite regularly.' "'there, for instance,' and he stamped suddenly on one spot. "'I'm really very doubtful about that potato.' "'And why?' asked Craven, amused with the little man's hobby. "'I'm doubtful about it,' said the other, "'because old Gow was doubtful about it himself. "'He put his spade in methodically in every place but just this. "'There must be a mighty fine potato just here.' Flambeau pulled up the spade and impetuously drove it into the place. He turned up, under a load of soil, something that did not look like a potato, but rather like a monstrous, over-domed mushroom. But it struck the spade with a cold click. It rolled over like a ball and grinned up at them. "'The Earl of Glengyle, said Brown sadly. And looked down heavily at the skull. Then, after a momentary meditation, he plucked the spade from flambeau and, saying, "We must hide it again," clamped the skull down in the earth. Then he leaned his little body and huge head on the great handle of the spade, that stood up stiffly in the earth, and his eyes were empty, and his forehead full of wrinkles. If one could only conceive he muttered, the meaning of this last monstrosity. And leaning on the large spade handle, he buried his brows in his hands, as men do in church. All the corners of the sky were brightening into blue and silver. The birds were chattering in the tiny garden trees. So loud it seemed as if the trees themselves were talking. But the three men were silent enough. Well, "'I give it all up,' said Flambeau, at last boisterously. "'My brain and this world don't fit each other, "'and there's an end of it. "'Snuff, spoilt prayer books, "'and the insides of musical boxes. "'What?' "'Brown threw up his bothered brow "'and rapped on the spade handle "'with an intolerance quite unusual with him. "'Oh, tut-tut-tut-tut,' he cried. "'All that is as plain as a pike-staff.' I understood the snuff and clockwork, and so on, when I first opened my eyes this morning. And since then I've had it out with old Gao, the gardener, who is neither so deaf nor so stupid as he pretends. There's nothing amiss about the loose items. I was wrong about the torn mass-book, too. There's no harm in that. But it's this last business. Desecrating graves and stealing dead men's heads "'Surely there's harm in that. "'Surely there's black magic still in that. "'That doesn't fit in to the quite simple story "'of the snuff and the candles.' "'And, striding about again, he smoked moodily. "'My friend,' said Flambeau, with a grim humor, "'you must be careful with me "'and remember I was once a criminal. "'The great advantage of that estate "'was that I always made up the story myself "'and acted it as quick as I chose. "'This detective business of waiting about "'is too much for my French impatience. "'All my life, for good or evil, "'I have done things at the instant. "'I always fought duels the next morning. "'I always paid bills on the nail. "'I never even put off a visit to the dentist.' "'Father Brown's pipe fell out of his mouth.' and broke into three pieces on the gravel path. He stood rolling his eyes, the exact picture of an idiot. Lord, what a turnip I am, he kept saying. Lord, what a turnip. Then, in a somewhat groggy kind of way, he began to laugh. The dentist, he repeated. Six hours in the spiritual abyss, "'and all because I never thought of the dentist. "'Such a simple, such a beautiful and peaceful thought. "'Friends, we have passed a night in hell, "'but now the sun is risen, the birds are singing, "'and the radiant form of the dentist consoles the world.' "'I will get some sense out of this,' cried Flambeau, striding forward. "'If I use the tortures of the Inquisition.' Father Brown repressed what appeared to be a momentary disposition to dance on the now sunlit lawn, and cried quite piteously, like a child, Oh, let me be silly a little. You don't know how unhappy I have been. And now I know that there has been no deep sin in this business at all, only a little lunacy, perhaps. And who minds that? He spun round once more, then faced them with gravity. "'This is not a story of crime,' he said. "'Rather, it is the story of a strange and crooked honesty. "'We are dealing with the one man on earth, perhaps, "'who has taken no more than his due. "'It is a study in the savage living logic "'that has been the religion of this race. "'That old local rhyme about the house of Glengyle, "'As green sap to the simmer trees,' is red gold to the Ogilvies. was literal as well as metaphorical. It did not merely mean that the Glengiles sought for wealth. It was also true that they literally gathered gold. They had a huge collection of ornaments and utensils in that metal. They were, in fact, misers whose mania took that turn. In the light of that fact, Run through all the things we found in the castle. Diamonds without their gold rings. Candles without their gold candlesticks. Snuff without the gold snuff boxes. Pencil leads without the gold pencil cases. A walking stick without its gold top. Clockwork without the gold clocks, or rather watches. And, mad as it sounds, because the halos and the name of God in the old missiles were of real gold, these also were taken away. The garden seemed to brighten, the grass to grow gayer in the strengthening sun, as the crazy truth was told. Flambeau lit a cigarette as his friend went on. "'We're taken away,' continued Father Brown. "'We're taken away, but not stolen.' Thieves would never have left this mystery. Thieves would have taken the gold snuff-boxes, snuff and all, the gold pencil-cases, lead and all. We have to deal with a man with a peculiar conscience, but certainly a conscience. I found that mad moralist this morning in the kitchen garden yonder, and I heard the whole story. The late Archibald Ogilvy was the nearest approach to a good man ever born at Glengyle. But his bitter virtue took the turn of the misanthrope. He moped over the dishonesty of his ancestors, from which, somehow, he generalized the dishonesty of all men. More especially he distrusted philanthropy or free giving, and he swore if he could find one man who took his exact rights, he should have all the gold of Glengyle. Having delivered this defiance to humanity, he shut himself up, without the smallest expectation of its being answered. One day, however, a deaf and seemingly senseless lad from a distant village brought him a belated telegram, and Glengyle, in his acrid pleasantry, gave him a new farthing. At least he thought he had done so, but when he turned over his change, he found the new farthing still there, "'and a sovereign gone. "'The accident offered him vistas of sneering speculation. "'Either way, the boy would show the greasy greed of the species. "'Either he would vanish, a thief stealing a coin, "'or he would sneak back with it virtuously, "'a snob seeking a reward. "'In the middle of that night, "'Lord Glengyle was knocked up out of his bed, "'for he lived alone.' "'and forced to open the door to the deaf idiot. "'The idiot brought with him, not the sovereign, "'but exactly nineteen shillings and eleven pence three farthings in change. "'Then the wild exactitude of this action "'took hold of the mad lord's brain like fire. "'He swore he was Diogenes, "'that had long sought an honest man, "'and at last had found one. "'He made a new will, which I have seen.' He took the literal youth into his huge, neglected house, and trained him up as his solitary servant and, after an odd manner, his heir. And whatever that queer creature understands, he understood absolutely his lord's two fixed ideas. First, that the letter of right is everything, and second, that he himself was to have the gold of Glengyle so far that is all, and that is simple. He has stripped the house of gold, and taken not a grain that was not gold, not so much as a grain of snuff. He lifted the gold leaf off the old illumination, fully satisfied that he left the rest unspoiled. All that I understood, but I could not understand this skull business.' I was really uneasy about that human head buried among the potatoes. It distressed me, till Flambeau said the word. It will be all right. He will put the skull back in the grave when he has taken the gold out of the tooth. And, indeed, when Flambeau crossed the hill that morning, he saw that strange being, the just miser, Digging at the desecrated grave, the plaid round his throat thrashing out in the mountain wind, the sober top hat on his head. End of the Honor of Israel Gow. Save big on Brunch for Mom! All in the Kroger app!